0: Welcome to the Transatlanticist at the American Centrum in Hamburg. I'm your host, Andrew Sola. This is our second episode about a towering figure in the history of Chicago, Jane Addams, community leader, scholar, noble peace laureate, and activist for women's rights, immigrants' rights, children's rights, workers' rights, and racial equality. In the first episode, we learned about her formative years. She was born in 1860 in a small farming village outside of Chicago. Her family was wealthy, And she had a forward thinking Republican father who was an abolitionist and supporter of women's education. From her father, Jane learned the importance of stewardship, the concept that those with wealth and power should work for the common good of the community. This would be one of the guiding ideas of her life. After her father died, Jane traveled to Europe. There she began to learn about a number of progressive ideas that were becoming more influential. For example, in Germany, she learned about the budding social sciences which were beginning to study the problems of modernity, such as urbanization and mass migration. She also began to develop another guiding idea of her life, that human beings were not subject to history and helpless, but that we have agency and can change history in positive ways, that we can solve the problems caused by technical innovation and progress. And the final guiding idea she began to develop was the concept of mediation and dialogue without understanding one another and talking to one another, we can never hope to solve the problems facing society. All of these ideas coalesced in Adams, founding the first settlement house in Chicago in 1889, called Hull House, a place of dialogue and exchange for the rich and poor, the immigrant and the U.S. born, men and women, worker and boss, black and white. My two expert guests are Rima Lunen Schultz and Anne Durkin Keating. Anne is professor of history at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois and the co-editor of the Encyclopedia of Chicago. Rima is a Jane Addams scholar and co-editor of the book Women Building Chicago, a Biographical Dictionary. She most recently co-authored Eleanor Smith's Whole House Songs, Music of Protest and Hope in Jane Addams, Chicago. We begin our discussion today with Rima giving us a brief history of the settlement house movement. We talk about settlement house and the settlement movement. Is that an acknowledged social movement? Yes, yes,
1: absolutely. It's a set, it's a it's a movement that becomes worldwide, and the first. Settlement House is in uh, the East End of, of London. It's called Toynbee Hall, and an Anglican priest and his wife, uh, Samuel Barnett and Henrietta Barnett, set it up, and they work with Oxford uh, University men, and they are working in the East End of London, which is the uh, a poor section, an immigrant section, industrial congested area and they are doing it differently than being a charity organization. This is not a, uh, uh, the idea is that they are going to in some way have a new kind of relationship with the people who are living in the neighborhood and together they are going to develop a public interest in a political sense, in Parliament, and get things changed, which will improve working-class conditions and neighborhood conditions. And Adams is particularly excited by the fact, as she puts it, that the Oxford men work with their neighbors without condescension, without arrogance, and they're neighborly. And this means a lot to her because what she's interested in always is a kind of mediation. How is it possible for people from different stations in life to be able to work together cooperatively and to come to um, consensus on paths to solve problems? And if they don't know each other and they don't talk to one another, it ain't going to happen. So when she opens Whole House, yes, she wants to bring culture and art and music to the neighborhood, but these are vehicles for the more important goal of having neighbors and privileged people have a reason to come together and begin to meet each other. And that is what is happening. And getting back to the Haymarket, one of the things that happens in Chicago as a result of Haymarket that Adams really approves of is how a businessman by the name of Lyman Gage decides that one of the things that people need to do in Chicago is talk to one another. And he starts a series of forums, open discussions, where workers and capitalists and civic leaders can can all talk to one another and work out some of the conflicts that are and know each other and and and, and he becomes head of the civic federation which Adams joins and it's that civic federation which has a committee that sends Adams eventually to the to try to arbitrate the Pullman strike in 1894 when that breaks out, and that's a little later. But what happens here is that she learns from Lyman Gage something that she likes a lot, which is let's apply more democracy to the problem. Let's not stay in our separate camps. Let's find a way of Mediating by bringing people together, and that's what she attempts to do at Whole House, and I, I I think that's an important strategy that she uh, follows most of her life, and it becomes internationalized when she
0: does it during war. Right. So so she she comes to Chicago and she decides partly with her own money to found Whole House with one of her friends. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Great. And so, so maybe Anne, you can talk about what does the neighborhood look like where she decides to open this place?
2: Well, I can start with the neighborhood. So she um doesn't know where she's going to go. And she describes this in 20 years at Hull House that she gets actually some of her father's friends to take her around and also missionaries to take her around Chicago to choose a spot for this settlement. And I mean, she really has this, she and Ellen Starr really have this idea that they're not going to, I mean, she gets the labor strife, that there's got to be resolutions of labor strife, but she doesn't go through the workplace. She's really intent on going through where people live
0: right, and getting I, to know
2: people on in that setting which I I think is really fascinating. But, I mean, George Pullman takes an opposite approach. George Pullman, I mean, but similar in the sense that he too agrees that neighborhood is important, so he creates a wholly new one, right? He builds a model town, this, right. you know, that's going on at roughly right. the same time. And Adams instead is going to go into the neighborhood to try and transform it. So the Near West Side has been a place of, of intense industrialization. So it's where... Uh, it's the river, uh, the South Branch of the Chicago River, is just to the to, on the eastern edge of the Near West Side, and that um, serves as the port for Chicago in into the 1880s. I mean, we're moving down to South Chicago, but even at this point in time, you've got lumber going in and out. You've got some of the major industries in Chicago are located, particularly Cyrus McCormick's Reaper Plant which is located just to the south of this. There's uh, railroad yards everywhere. This is to uh, to the to the particularly to the south, but railroad yards are a big part of this story. So there's a lot of, in, and then many, many smaller industry, factories and industries in this neighborhood. So there's big pieces, then they're on every block. There's apt to be some kind of a factory or an industrial operation. And into this then, this neighborhood have come waves of immigrants, and largely immigrants, and beginning, you know, if we go back to the 1870s, uh, even the 1860s, so you go back to the time of the Civil War, we're talking about Irish immigrants. This is the neighborhood of Catherine O'Leary, Uh, where the Chicago fire starts, so you get a sense of the, the neighborhood that goes back that far. Those Irish immigrants have begun to build churches, so they build Holy Family Church in this neighborhood, which will be an important part of this infrastructure. By the 1880s, we've got new waves of immigrants alongside of Irish and German. You've got Italian Jewish Polish, uh, Russian, is that Italians. fair? Bohemians. Bohemians are a big part of this group, Italians coming in. So that by 1889, it's a it's a really polyglot place. Uh, many, many languages are spoken. Most of those immigrant groups have their own uh, religious institutions and other institutions that they have founded, mutual benefit societies. They have their own uh, groceries, saloons, and it's crowded. It's dirty it's got uh, relatively few city services you've got uh, water coming into the neighborhood but sewage uh, the sewerage system is inadequate you've got a lot of privies still in the backyard um, right. this is a, a fairly I mean it's crowded smelly dirty this is this is um, yeah uh, it's it's a it must have been quite quite shocking in some ways for our our uh, young woman from uh, Cedarville to to come into the near west side but she finds an old house yeah that had you know been used actually by Catholic nuns and and also as a factory so it's uh but it had started as a suburban house and very quickly had had been transformed and she and Ellen Gates start Settle into this neighborhood. And I think I think the idea too of settlement houses that's important that ties us back to an earlier part of our discussion is that they were creating a household in the neighborhood. So they wanted to join. They were not tourists. They were not, she was not doing something that was unusual. She was a woman creating helping to create a household. What was unusual that she was, it was not within the context of a, of a marriage and a, a traditional family, but she was creating a household there. And that was from her the start, right? I mean, she asked people to join her, other residents to come and live with her. And that's the interesting crew. The people that come to join her are going to be people, some of whom were academics or scholars who had been trained. Florence Kelly with that German training. And some of them are people like her who are committed to this idea of social justice. So there isn't really a a single idea of what's going to happen in this neighborhood. I think that's fair, isn't it, Rima?
0: Yes, yes. So our brave heroine found, (laughs) who's quite wealthy, world traveler, decides to go into a filthy polyglot working class slum in Chicago to open a house for basically uh, where people can explore community relations and do the fine work of mediating conflicts. And this is the foundation of Whole House, one might say. The founding of Whole House and its great success would have been plenty for one person to do in her life. But of course, founding something as influential as Whole House is just, you know, something you do maybe in your (laughs) twenties and then you go on to do other great things. But she's also involved in so many other things. Do we want to start talking about some of the other projects and causes she's involved in beyond whole house?
2: Sure. And I, I, I think I'll let Rima will talk. um, But I think the really interesting thing here to me is that Adams is an inspiration. She's really drawing, people who also want to to do good they want that want to improve this world that they see as hugely flawed they're drawn to her so um, she's holding she's really drawing residents to Hull House and associates to Hull House who's who are going to transform I think 20th cent the 20th century uh, Chicago and the United States and that's I think really important so Hull House really Because it's a place, it's going to draw people in. People will be here. They will talk to each other. Uh, We're in a world where face-to-face is going to matter a great deal. And I think that that will bring a wide range of people. The other thing that really I think is important for understanding the wide range of things that Adams gets involved in, if we come from a base of Hull House, is that she's not wedded to one reform. <laughs> this is somebody who is uh, looking for good ideas and she inspires other people. It's one of the things I most admire about Jane Addams is that she is an inspiration, that she draws other people to to come up with really good ideas on their own, that she will support and um, maybe run with. She's also, and out of Hull House, she is an incredibly good communicator. I mean, she's one of the most, she's the most famous woman in the United States on the basis of what she writes for general audiences. So she's not only drawing and being an inspiration to people, but she's also translating those ideas for a wider public middle class audience that she's really that really becomes um incredibly important. And and Rima, you probably want to talk about some of these these uh causes that she gets involved with that are tied to people, specific people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well I I think that the way in which she allows individuals who come to whole house to discover what they are able to incubate so to speak and develop to uh, give them their their head so to speak let them go with it and make a uh, an innovation and work on things without her having to uh, Supervise too much, or uh, in, in 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 any way hold people back, but let them go forward is one of her as as Anne says one of her great talents. So let's talk about something so simple as teaching children music, which ties a lot of our themes together here. So she has this this Eleanor Smith. Now Eleanor Smith is a Chicago woman comes from a prosperous family, and she's interested in uh, piano playing and uh, music education. And she goes to uh, Germany to study. And she goes to Germany for a couple of years. And she's very interested in the methodology of music education, the pedagogy of music education in Europe especially. And uh, she learns a great deal about this. And uh, she also makes a friend, a woman by the name of Amelie Honig, who plays piano also. And they come back and they come to Hull House in the uh, early 1890s. So it's at the very beginning. And they begin teaching, uh, giving music lessons and voice lessons to the immigrant children in the neighborhood. And they decide they are going to create. Elmer uh, Smith says, Well, I'm going to make a music school for, for the neighborhood. And Adam says, Okay, well, I'll get the money. And uh, that's another part of it. And we have to go into that. Adam doesn't, she runs out of her own money pretty quickly because she's doing all kinds of things. And the whole house complex grows and grows and grows. And between 1889 and 1907, it grows to encompass a big city block. It is like a campus. There are 12 additional buildings that join the original house. The original house itself is renovated and an extra floor is put on it and it it just grows and grows, okay? So Eleanor Smith has this idea. She says she's going to teach music to immigrant children. Uh, She wants to both uh, incorporate the folk music of these different traditions, but she's going to teach them how to read and write classical music. And she's going to teach them a, a pedagogy that's classical. And the whole house songs, which we write about in this book that I've done, are surprising because they are written in the, Format of German leader. And when we first heard them, when we got a musicologist to put it together, we were stunned because these are not the normal labor songs that the trade union people in the United States, you know, the Wobblies, the Little Red Songbook uh, that we're used to. These are highfalutin classic. Uh, German leader-type songs, yet they're about the sweatshop. And guess what? Eleanor Smith has taken the poem of a Russian-Jewish tailor who is also a Yiddish poet who's written about the sweatshop, and she's translated it into this song about the sweatshop that she's put in the format a German leader, and she's teaching it to the neighborhood kids. And she develops this great music school, and she just doesn't develop the music school. She then teaches in the Teachers College in Chicago, uh, where Francis Parker, the famous Francis Parker, who was an associate or trained by the Horace Mann School of public education in Massachusetts and whatnot, who comes to, to Chicago and is sponsored by Anita McCormick Blaine, the daughter of Cyrus McCormick, so she's a very rich person, uh, and a friend of Jane Addams. And and they're interested in progressive education, and they have this Chicago uh, School of, of, of Education. And Eleanor Smith teaches there, and she teaches her idea of how to teach music in public schools. Up until this time, the idea that music education is related to working-class public school education doesn't exist. Adams gives speeches about this to the top national groups of educators. She writes popular magazine articles to advocate for this. And Eleanor Smith writes textbooks. And so she is teaching teachers who will do this work. She's making source material that is adopted as textbooks in the classrooms. For 40 years, she lives at Hull House and runs this music school. This music school becomes the inspiration of the more than 400 settlement houses that are in existence in the United States by 1900, 1911 rather. You've got a movement. You've got something that has legs. And this is the sort of thing that happens in so many directions. And it's really making modern America. And is transforming the society and adopting and adapting it to the needs of mass society, urban society, industrial society. And that's the uh, contribution that Adam stimulates
0: along others, along others. We'll, um, we'll get to those others shortly, but uh, Anne, I think you wanted to add something about this.
2: Oh, just just the education story is is broad, right? So it's music education, but it's also more broadly teacher education. And she brings, she draws. Adams is drawing people to Hull House and the discussions. People like John Dewey, who are going to be transforming education, particularly for young children. Maria Montessori is introduced, you know, here in Chicago from her uh, Italian roots in in through Hull House. I think she's also, she's drawing people in like like Florence Kelly, who are going to work for factory protections for uh, women, children, but for everyone. So she's going to get, uh, in, it's not Jane Adams who's doing that factory inspection, but she is drawing people to Hull House that, uh, as as Rima suggests, are really going to be transforming the relationship, particularly between public bodies and this new industrial order and looking for ways to regulate and put guardrails up for people, whether it's Florence Kelly as the first factory inspector here in Illinois and all of the laws protecting women and children in labor situations. Those are things that Adams is actively encouraging, fostering, popularizing and she's doing that, again, from this base at Hull House, where her argument is you're looking around and you're seeing what's in the neighborhood and what's needed, and you're always connected with the people that you're working with. So it's not, in fact, it's it's very deliberately not a university setting. It's a setting that's not set apart from the right. city as a whole, but it's a place where where the interaction between workers and Residents in this neighborhood where you can see that improvement taking place. You know, um, juvenile justice, right? The idea that young uh, men and women, but particularly young men who get in trouble with the law, need to be treated differently from adults. I mean, the whole idea of a juvenile court that starts from one of Jane Addams' great, great supporters, Louise de Bowen, and the foundation of that juvenile court and juvenile justice really begins again from her focusing on this. Another area is housing. She's very interested in, in housing. Um, she's gonna work in Chicago for tenement house reform. She'll be a part of the early, of this this first tenement house reform law in 1902. It's something that I'd say she's she's frustrated by, but she's going to be working with garbage inspection as a way of improving the neighborhood itself playgrounds, um, libraries, I mean, the kinds of things that we've come to accept as a a core part of what a neighborhood should have, she's doing. So it's, it's going on the neighborhood level, but it's also more broadly moving people towards city, state, and then eventually national legislation on a lot of these issues. But there are issues then that she's going to build on as she moves out of Chicago and out of the United States and into a more national stage. Many of these things are still rooted in the problems that she and others who come to the neighborhood see and identify. I mean, her intention, to go back to another point that, that Rima had in mind, is that Hull House would serve as a bridge, a mediator, an interpreter, a translator of working class life, and also to bring those voices to the table. In some ways, when we list all of these accomplishments, it's more responsive to the neighborhood than it is inclusive of the people in the neighborhood in this process, but she she's keeps that goal all the way along, even if, for the most part, this work is being done by people who come into the neighborhood as residents or associates, but they're, they're going to transform this neighborhood. But, and again, with the idea that it's a demonstration, right? So her always her view is, what's this settlement house? It's helping people in this neighborhood, but it's also a demonstration of what can be done in every neighborhood in Chicago, in every industrial city in, in the U.S., and then more broadly in industrialized parts of, of the world that she knows. Whether you know it's initially Europe by the 1920s, she's looking at Japan and China, she's thinking more broadly about the world in that way as well.
0: I think since, Anne, you've started gesturing to the fact that the ideas that kind of were born locally started spreading is a good way for us to segue into a huge subject that I would like to discuss next, which is her her anti-war activities, which uh, led to, of course, her receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. So how, how did she sort of, as she's going through her whole house experience, how does she sort of emotionally first start looking at relations between nations. How does this come up?
1: It starts with the uh, anti-imperialist league uh, at the turn of the century, turn of the uh, 20th century in Chicago, actually, she's against the uh, Spanish-American War. Uh, She is against war as a solution violence as a solution, uh, she sees no redeemable aspect to conflict. She actually sees no redeemable aspect to even the kind of conflict that police protection of the state implies. Uh, She wants to create a society of mutualism, of cooperation, and her solution, for example, to the terrible fear in 1908, it comes to a head uh, with the Averbach case of the anarchists, uh, where the, the federal government actually passes a law that allows for the deportation, immediate deportation, of uh, non-citizens in the country who are deemed uh, anarchists and are considered uh, dangerous to the state. And all of a sudden in Chicago, there, where there are so many immigrants and so many immigrants who are of uh, dissenting political groups, socialists and whatnot, going back to Haymarket. That was the accusation. And Adams defends them, and she defends them with the idea of two great ideas mediation and more democracy. What she means is what is more democracy means? It means rule of law. It means no vigilanteism. It means taking the time to allow newcomers to say their peace, to give them rights, even when they're not citizens yet, to treat them as citizens, to make citizenry uh, on the highest of levels is the only way to ensure that democracy will, will be sustained. And in this case, her very important, and very overlooked book, Newer Ideals of Peace, which she finishes writing at the beginning of 1907. And they come out of a series of lectures she gives for a period of time where she's really thinking about the local and the global dimensions of getting along and Chicago has taught her something right away. The neighborhood has taught her something right away. She sees in this neighborhood that Anne has so nicely described, this polygot neighborhood, she sees people who fight in Europe with each other and cannot get along, but in this little neighborhood, even in their poverty, show hospitality and goodness And get along and work together most of the time. Sure, there's conflict. She doesn't disagree that there is, (laughs) but not always, but not always, (laughs) right? But she sees the possibility of going in the direction of getting along. You know, she's an optimist. I think if I wanted to use a word, she's an optimist.
0: And she's, yes. I think you're banging or pounding, pounding on oh, something, oh, and me. that's it, coming through. Oh, and I love it. Keep the energy, but without the pounding.
1: Excuse me.
0: No, I love My the enthusiasm.
1: just—it's <laughs> <laughs> the
0: stupid microphone picks it up. Um, um,
1: so, it's a good, it's a good microphone. But anyway, but the anti-imperialism starts. What she is interested in and continues to be involved in peace groups is with With men in the peace movement is to find a way to not just sit and talk about peace but find strategies to engage in active activities I don't want to say even when we're at war, that's the clue to the hague and to the Congresses that she has with women during the World War I act of war. I, I, I want to just yeah. pause
0: right here. In previous episodes, we talked about the lead up to World War One and how it affected the German community in Chicago. Right. And it actually led to the death of Germanic culture in Chicago because the German immigrants, first, second generations, chose to minimize their Germanness, But you, you also mentioned that she was an optimist. And I, I can imagine that a war as horrific as World War I was, millions of dead, hundreds of thousands of casualties in single battles, did that in any way uh, make her a little bit depressed or pessimistic? I mean, I understand the impulse that you want to prevent this, but World War I is such a miserable, horrible, tragic thing I I can't imagine maintaining one's optimism about the human condition when faced with such a horror.
1: Adams had a sadness and a melancholy in her countenance, in her photographs, even as she was an optimist. When I say she was an optimist, I wanna say that she put the best face on things when she spoke in public, because she wanted to bring people to positive action. Personally, I think she struggled with demons all along. And I won't, It will be a detour to talk about how she worried about death and loss and so forth. Uh, we, I won't say that, but uh, get into that. But I feel strongly that she was vilified for remarks she made about the soldiers. Uh, the famous statement she made about the bayonet charge in World War One. That that she 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 came back in 1915 and spoke in New York, I believe, at Carnegie Hall, and she made the statement that the soldiers in the trenches on both sides, you know, had to be given stimulants to fight each other because it was unnatural. They were frightened and it was a terrible thing to do this trench warfare. And um, she was vilified by the American Legion and other patriots and whatnot, and they really yelled at her. But that wasn't her worst sin. Her worst sin was that she worried about the starvation of the German children. What a terrible thing that even during the war, she worked with the Quakers to make sure that food got to the German children. And after the war, she continued. And that was really held against her. Why did she do that? Even the one really critical statement that I found in the Chicago Defender, the African-American newspaper, was about this. Why isn't she worried about the Blacks who were doing so badly in the United States. What is she worried about, you know, the Europeans and these, the, these, these considerations? People did not understand that she, out of uh, uh, a sense of empathy, but also an understanding of what this was doing to the social conditions of the next generation, and how it was going to breed nothing but anger and rage and the next war, she was deeply committed to, to doing anything that was possible to mediate and stop it, and stop the starvation, and make some kind of redemption possible, and she worked with Herbert Hoover, interestingly enough. He was not yet president, but he was as a, both as a private citizen and, and also as, I believe, as Secretary of Commerce, uh, involved with this sort of uh, food um, uh, distribution. And I always felt that her ability to care about even those who were her enemy was something that people couldn't tolerate. And that was an interesting aspect of her life. Do you think she saw
2: them as her enemy? No, no. She. I mean, I think that's. I. I don't think she would have seen she any of not. any of these anyone here no. as her enemy. And the other piece of this is this is when she starts to work very specifically with women's groups, isn't it?
1: Yes. Well, she initially. Adams never wants to not work with men because she's smart. Men have the power. A whole house was never intended to be a woman's group. It was never supposed to be just for women uh, or a a refuge for women who were trying to get their careers started. That's that's something that we historians have kind of made up. (laughs) Ellen Starr and Adams were looking for men from day one, they understood that the people who were in charge, the people who were voting, were men. And and, and not only that, but the whole idea of Jane Addams was not to turn her back on the capitalists or the men, but to bring them right in and create a circumstance where they would learn to respect and listen to the other side, including the other side being women. When she and Lillian Wald corresponded with each other over starting the peace movement at the start of World War I, and this is when the Women's Peace Party was started, And uh, this is 1914 and so forth. And they're debating whether or not to go with the men or not. And they want to go with the men. And the letters are very clear between the two of them. And by the way, Lillian Wald and Jane Addams were very close. And finally Jane Addams says, look, we have to go our own way because they are just not, they are just not going to move fast enough. They're not going to do this. And so she's, resolve to go forward and that's what she has to do. So the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom is born out of necessity as well as um, mission. Anne, did you want to add something? It's it's
2: just that this moment of war that she really sees allying with other women across the country and around the world is the critical factor that can quickly end this war. Now, she's unsuccessful in that, but yeah. that is, that really, that it was a, a decision that, in fact, the power that women had in being, um, and I think she felt naturally anti-war, Rima. Is that a fair assessment that she saw women in that way? She saw gender difference in that way.
1: Right, uh, not not so much biologically, but culturally. No, no, no. Right, right, In right. In terms right, of right. their historical position. Yes, right. yes, right. yes, right.
0: yes. So, so how does the end of World War One change her trajectory, or how does the cessation of conflict influence the remaining years of her life?
2: I can start with what's going on in Chicago. Yeah. So Chicago after World War One and with World War One is changing dramatically. Right. Uh, the uh, we no longer there's no longer thousands and thousands of immigrants from largely from Europe coming in as a result of the beginning of the conflict and then the immigration restrictions that are going to come in the 1920s, and instead. The the migrants who are coming to Chicago to take up the industrial work that continues to look for new workers are Black Southerners and, and a smaller group of Mexican migrants, but that's also a piece of this. And what's going to happen then on the near west side in the neighborhood around Hull House and in neighborhoods across Chicago is that we're going to see black Chicagoans now growing in numbers. They were a very small part of Chicago's population at the beginning of the century. And I would say that that then becomes one of the key challenges of Adam's time and the rest of of her time in this neighborhood. And 1919 kind of crystallizes that because 1919 is the year of a race if we want to call it a riot, we've certainly traditionally called it a riot. But the the unrest that takes place in July 1919 that pits Black Chicagoans against uh, very hostile ethnic white Chicagoans from the neighborhoods surrounding the Black neighborhoods themselves on the South Side in large measure, but it spills over to the Near West Side and is a part of of the story there. And so one of the things that Jane Adams is going to have to be confronting is that issue of race, which has not been a central story in in hers, but will become a more important one here. And then the other thing that's taking place is her neighborhood and many of the inner inner neighborhoods, uh, the older neighborhoods, uh, particularly these older worker industrial neighborhoods, the jobs are leaving. The factories are moving to larger plants or they're closing down, but they're moving out And so the neighborhoods themselves are really beginning to change. And she's confronting a neighborhood that's really dramatically changed from 1889 by the time she gets to, you know, the period of time in the 1920s and early 1930s. And so... She's um the nimbleness, I mean it's an interesting interchange that it's not she's lost her neighborhood. The neighborhood that she came to and worked with initially is not this neighborhood, is right. no longer this neighborhood.
0: Right. Rima, did you want to add something there? She writes a second
1: memoir that's less known, which is the second 20 years or 40 years at Hull House which she publishes just before the Great Depression descends upon the American scene, 1929, 1930. And in it, she sort of takes up the story from 1909 to 1930, which is sort of which is interesting. It's written very differently, extremely differently, from 20 years at Hull House. It has... Uh, a framework that's cosmic. It's almost as if she's in a spaceship <laughs> and she's looking down and she's taking the broadest, widest look she can on Earth. After a lot of failures, League of, Women, League of Nations doesn't get passed, uh, the war was terrible. There's militarization is starting up again all over the world. Her dear friend, Dr. Alice Hamilton, has been reporting on the rise of Nazism. Her friends in the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom are also finding it hard uh, to continue their work, especially those who are Jews. Pacifism, can it have a place. She has already, as early as nineteen thirteen, but certainly she's been thinking about it even earlier, made the statement that the Emancipation Proclamation given out by President Lincoln has been nullified. The great hope of her generation to walk out in the in the pathways and finish the business now has to say that they've nullified the promise and she said we did my generation didn't have the fervor of the abolitionists regarding this problem of race and so race has never not been on jane adams mind but she has had to uh, survive this and strategize in a Jim Crow world, an increasingly Jim Crow world. Even as she modeled, uh, with the best intentions, uh, personal integration, always. And this is this is terrible. She loses the love of her life. Mary Rose Smith dies unexpectedly in nineteen thirty-four. She was eight years old, younger than Jane, and no one expected this to happen. Uh, Most of her intimate friends believed that Jane would die immediately after this shock. She doesn't. She's recovering from her second serious heart attack, Jane Addams. In my mind, I have a a photo image that I will always hold dear. It's one of the great photo images of Jane Adams and her colleague Mary McDowell, another settlement house person in Chicago who was in the back of the arts, and was a great integrationist, like Jane Adams. In nineteen thirty two the two of them, as old women, uh, suffering, probably both of them with hypertension and other things, you could tell in their legs and their bodies. That they're they're on the way out, so to speak, and they have a sign, a peace sign, and they're marching to the Democratic Party convention in Chicago, and um, they're demanding demilitarization. And uh, we know where that went, but they're there, <laughs> you know, they're on they're in the street, and that's one of my favorite photographs, because that's
0: Jane Addams, said she didn't give up. We've skipped a little bit ahead to 1934. Um, Rima, how did she react to winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931? In
1: 1931, she was bedridden. She was at Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital in Baltimore. She was having a cyst removed. She was actually in very bad shape, but nobody knew it. She had um, actually stopped breathing. Her heart had stopped on the operating table, and they had uh, resuscitated her. Uh, she never attended the ceremony. She was very busy with whole house business, which again points to another wonderful aspect of Jane Adams. She fought like hell to keep her finger in the pie on Halstead and Polk Street, where the the settlement house was. She was not giving up. There was a rowdy boys' young men's club called the Sportsmen's Club. And they were, at that point in uh, 1931, Semi-criminal, or at least a Juvenile Protective Association, which her friend Louise Bowen was president of, had inside information from the probation officers in the courts that they had guns that they were keeping at Whole House and that they were criminals. And so she wanted to keep this quiet, Jade Adams, and she wanted to get them out of Whole House. They were a gang. And so she worried, and the neighborhood had deteriorated quite a bit, as Anne has suggested. So she wrote them a nice little letter, and she said, we don't have room for you anymore. Well, they had a friend called Johnny Granada, the Greek, and he had grown up with Jane Addams. Uh, I mean, in Whole House. He had been a Hull House boy. He had been in the drama clubs, and he was an Italian kid who later, when he was in his late 40s, was gunned down when he ran for county-wide office uh, in a political campaign. So, I mean, this is all part of the war and the actual uh, activities of the Near West Side that were so difficult for Jane Addams to tolerate and to understand. But anyway, but Johnny, the Greek, was personally known to Jane Addams, and he didn't care if she was a Nobel Prize winner, and he didn't care that she was in the hospital. He was going to write Miss Adams, and no one was going to stop him, and she was going to write back to the Greek. And they had a correspondence from the bed to him and back, and he was not ashamed to write to his old friend. And she was not going to dis to disregard him. And uh, anyway, they worked it out in some way, some fashion. But it is all part of who this woman was. She's a complicated woman. I have spent oh a long time, maybe thirty years. I don't know, Anne. How long have I spent easily thirty living years living with this woman? <laughs> and You know, every time I get to the end of the life, which I am now, I start to cry. I'm crying. She remains an enigmatic figure. She is a complicated figure. American history is complicated, it deserves our attention. She was not the type of person who took a lot of time with self-care and worry about her, her uh, who she was in the world. Though some people have thought that she had a lot of ambition. Well, maybe she did, but she was also a person of, of tremendous um, depth. And at this point, uh, she was thinking about how she was going to use the money for peace. Uh, for her peace projects, which she did, which she did. None of the money went to Hull House, and none of the money went to Jane Addams.
0: And do you want to make a final point?
2: Yeah, when, when trying to sum up Jane Addams, one of the reasons why she continues to engage me, not as long as she has engaged Rima, but certainly engaged me, is the idea that she always worked for a common good, that she was not self-interested. And I think that speaks to what Rima was just just relating. And that's that's an unusual thing to find someone that over and over and over in whatever arena you look at, she's really looking at a common good over self-interest. The thing that complicates this, of course, is that she got to decide for us what the common good was. That is that she it goes back to the stewardship that she held with that she got from (laughs) her dad. And that is that that uh, it was an elite view that she had the ability to discern what was for the common good, even as she understood that she needed to be in the neighborhood and she needed to be talking to the Greek. Um, right. Even from uh, her hospital bed in in Baltimore, she yeah. still was making those decisions on her own, and I think we wrestle with that, and, and I think we wrestle right. with that uh, more broadly in Chicago and in the United States, but she towers. I mean, Victoria uh, Bissell-Brown, her biographer in Women Building Chicago, Rima's volume, You know, she talks about her being a tower. She towers over Chicago history, uh, Jane Addams does. And I really think that that's, that's not hyperbole. That's absolutely the case. There's no other person like her in Chicago history.
0: What strikes me about Jane Addams going over this history almost 100 years later is that in an age of social division, in an age of international conflict, in an age yet again when immigrants are discriminated against in the US and around the world, that the Jane Adams approach to all of this is very pragmatic and a problem-solving approach that is grounded in deep respect for all. Yet maybe she thought she was coming at it from a perspective of being an elite or a leader, but still in everything she did without that deep respect for all, how can you encourage conversation about issues that you can then resolve? Well, you need to start by having the conversation, building the bridges and mediating, which is the point of this podcast and the point of the Humburg Chicago Sister City relationship. So thank you, Anne. Thank you, Rima for helping us to build another little piece of the bridge.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Andy. It has been a joy to be with you.
0: If Jane Addams is out there listening, thanks from us to Jane Adams.
2: <laughs> here, 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 here. here, right. here, here.
0: Bye, everyone.